The copyright-expired song you're hearing is Dancing Fool. Lyrics by Harry B. Smith and Francis Wheeler. Music by Ted Snyder. Ted Snyder was best known for a Tin Pan Alley hit called The Sheik of Araby, which was made into a movie in... I, I don't know exactly what year. I'm getting conflicting dates online about when this movie was made. But a movie in the 30s or 40s called The Sheik of Araby. And let me tell you, when I find out there's a movie from back then called The Sheik of Araby, I am like... Load that fucker up. Because the only thing that I enjoy anymore are ironically bad things. I know enough about myself to know that this is my problem, not Hollywood's problem, but it remains true that Hollywood doesn't make movies I like. Nobody makes movies I like. It's my problem, not theirs. But I do like ironic things. And a movie from back then with an Arab theme, oh, that's gonna deliver. That is gonna be problematic as shit. Unfortunately, I could not find the Sheik of Arabi anywhere. As far as I can tell, you cannot rent this movie anywhere. Even if you're willing to pay five bucks for the high-def version of a movie from a hundred years ago. You can't find it. I had to make do with a couple clips I found on YouTube. And the first question, of course, is was it problematic? And the answer is yeah! What are you, what are you stupid? It's called the Sheik of Arabi from 80, 90 years ago. Just the fact that it's from that long ago is enough to tell you, look, it's going to be problematic. My wife and I, when we watch old movies now, and by old, that can just mean from the 90s, we will ask each other, we sort of place a bet, like, how many problematic elements are going to be in this movie? <laughs> and a good rule of thumb, I think, is one problematic element for every five years. So if you're watching a movie from 1997, there are probably going to be five things that happen in that movie that make you go, couldn't do that nowadays. And let me be clear, I think that's largely good. I don't think it's entirely good. I think it's largely good. You do encounter things in old movies and TV shows that makes you think, couldn't do that anymore, and that is the right decision. And The Sheik of Araby, at least the clips that I saw on YouTube, of course, it contains tons of stuff that makes you go, shouldn't do that. I mean, it's cartoony. That's the big problem. That's the big problem. It's a cartoony portrayal of an Arabian king. I got into this topic and adjacent topics in a piece I wrote about a year ago called The You Can Only Write Characters Who Are Exactly You Idea Is Not Workable. The problem is that it's cartoony. If you're a writer, this is my opinion, if you're a writer and you don't actually know what you're writing about. You don't do any research, you don't make any effort to make things accurate. If you just gotta go, yeah, what are they like? You know what, I'll bet I know what they like. I'm just gonna throw some shit together. Arab King, what do you got? Hookahs, you got belly dancers, you got that big puffy hat. Bang, Arab King. If you're glib about it and just make things cartoony and way off base, that is not good. I call it the hippies on dragnet problem. Because the writers on that show were like, what's the counterculture like? You know what? I'm not going to do any research at all. I'm just going to start typing. So the Sheik in this, of course, just some Italian dude. <laughs> just some Italian dude. Maybe Mexican. Maybe both. Not Arab. We know that much. The costumes are cheesy. Though, of course, they are. It's a long time ago. And actually, this movie, unlike so many of the other old movies I've been watching, has some budget behind it. The clips I'm seeing take place in the Sheik's Palace, and it's a big, like, a good Broadway stage. It's all set up for tap dancing, you've got all these extras, well, they're not extras, they're dancers. 
lying around, not a single person of Arabian descent among them, which doesn't bother me. What does bother me is there's not somebody who looks like they could be of Arabian descent lying among them. Because, and I will stand by this, the standard has to be, do you read as the character you're portraying? And a lot of people say, no, it's an Arab palace. They should all be Arab. Okay, define Arab. Good fucking luck with that. What are you going to do when you get a dancer who's from Iran? What about somebody of Turkish descent? What are you going to do? Get deep into the nitty-gritty of the exact genetic derivations of people on the Arab Peninsula? What are you, Joseph Mengele? Stop treating race like it's a real thing. The standard has to be, do you read as the character? Anyway, two people in the palace who absolutely do not read as Arab are two tap dancers who are clearly African-American, Sub-Saharan African. You can't even go like, Egypt maybe? Nope. Sub-Saharan African. And if you're thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, they could say that they're like travelers from a distant land or something. Nope. They are wearing offensive, cartoony, Arabian garb, not offensive, cartoony, Sub-Saharan African garb. And I watched this tap dance number, and you should too. It's the first YouTube clip that came up when I searched the Sheik of Arabi. The tap dance number is really good. It's like amazing. They're doing like one-handed cartwheels, and at the end they jump off of this high stage like straight into a split. It looks like they're about to literally tear themselves a new asshole, but they survive it. They're fine. (laughs) And it's really good, and it turns out it's these two guys called the Nicholas Brothers. And maybe some of you knew them. I did not. It turns out they were big Harlem Renaissance figures, and you know what? They're 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 really good tap dancers. I've been watching YouTube clips this morning, and holy shit, these guys are good at tap dancing. And I was thinking, what if, what if they back then had had the mores of today? So if somebody had come to them and said, "Hey, we want you to be in a movie. You will be uh, dressed as servants in an Arab king's palace." And the, it's going to be a really offensive, like, silly, cartoony, American imagining of what Arabian culture is like. We're only not going to make you wear shoes with that little curly cue thing on the end because you are tap dancers. That is the only reason you won't be wearing those shoes. If they had the mores of today, <laughs> I think they would have had to say, yeah, we're not going to do that. Not for nothing, I'm glad that they didn't. Because here I am, 80, 90 years later, watching their clips and going, fuck, that's good. That's fucking good. I didn't know who they were. Now I do. I think there's a lesson in there about how if you expect figures from a long time ago to have the mores of today, that is silly. Because if they had those mores back then, they would have simply said no, no, no to everything that ever came along. And that is a recipe for irrelevance. Hello. I'm Jeff Maurer, the Comptroller of Arabia, and this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. Equal parts riffs on old movies and rants about zoning reform, that classic podcast formula. And I'd like to remind you that everything I do can be found on my substack at imightbewrong.substack.com. Please go, please subscribe, even though it is completely free. The reasons behind that are too boring to get into, but it's completely free. Though you can, if you want, pay me six bucks a month. And and you know what? If you pay me the six bucks a month, you get the high-def version. 
And some people will say, boy, the high-def version looks like the regular def version. Uh, your TV isn't set up for it. Or in this case, your computer monitor. I swear to you, it's high-def. If you're not getting the high-def experience, it is some problem on your end. Today's episode is called Merit is Meaningless. I wanted to write this one because I feel that making decisions about who gets which job, who goes to what university, they are inherently difficult decisions, and I honestly do feel that the only fair way to make them has to be to assess how suited that person is for that particular role. I think that's extremely important, and I think that what I perceive is the trend away from that viewpoint in recent years. I think that is a big, big, big mistake. So I want to stand up and be counted as somebody who favors the concept of meritocracy. But before I do that, I felt the need to clarify what I am and am not talking about when I talk about meritocracy. So the episode is called Merit is Meaningless, subheading, but meritocracy is important. I am going somewhere with this. So, next week, I'm going to publish an episode arguing that meritocracy is good. I'm going to argue that the recent trend towards rolling your eyes at meritocracy is bad, and that meritocracy is something that a just society should want. But before I do that episode, I feel like I need to do this episode, in which I make the argument that merit is a meaningless concept that should be ignored in every single context except for one. And all that might seem contradictory, and maybe it is. Maybe I am getting so far up my ass with semantic distinctions that this episode is basically a self-colonoscopy. Maybe. Nonetheless, I do see a big difference between saying that merit is a useful concept, which I think that it is, and saying that it is a meaningful concept which I think it is not. I think the debate over meritocracy, it is very often pro-merit people arguing that the concept is useful versus anti-merit people arguing that the concept is meaningless. As is so often the case in American politics, both sides are sort of right. Both sides are completely speaking past each other and both badly need to please shut the fuck up. So let's start here. A society that is perfectly meritocratic would be hell. Imagine that there was a single trait that society valued. Call it M for merit. Everyone agrees that M is all that matters. The only thing on earth that matters. In this scenario, the one true God, we'll call him Brad, came to earth and said, M is all I care about. That is a dead on Brad impression, by the way. He said, M is all I care about. Everyone agrees that Brad is God, and everyone has heeded the word of Brad and become singularly focused on increasing their personal M quotient. So society learns to measure M with great precision, and benefits are doled out in perfect proportion to the extent that a person exhibits M. So that society that I've just described would be perfectly fair perfectly, literally perfectly fair. And it would also be a living hell because it would be perfectly hierarchical. Everyone would know their exact moral worth. Remember that in this scenario, M is perfectly measured. So your M score 
would be a true measure of your value as a person. Everyone except for the most successful person alive would therefore feel inadequate. Low M producers would feel deep shame. High M people would claim to be superior and they would be right (laughs) because the Lord Brad thy God hath declared it so. Luckily, nothing even remotely like this exists on earth or ever will. We do sometimes act like it kind of does. Some people see money as a proxy for worth. Obviously, that is quite stupid. But it is common when we call someone successful, what we typically mean is that person made a lot of money. So sorry to get all petulant 15-year-old on you here, but like, did you ever notice that all society cares about is like money? That's that point of view. But again, that is obviously silly. The observation that money does not equate to moral worth, which is a trite enough observation to have been the basis for every middle-brow comedy movie between the years 1980 and 1995. That observation points out just how silly societal evaluations of worth can be. And that's the first point I want to make. What we value is often really arbitrary. Various traits have held wildly different values in various cultures throughout human history. That proves that most assessments of quote-unquote worth are really just snapshot evaluations in a constantly changing market. For example, consider how valuable being a huge muscly oaf used to be. That used to be a key thing, really the key thing. Being a jacked-up pile of meat used to have a million uses, from defending your cave, to clearing brush, to killing game with a boulder. For much of human history, the A1 first choice prime choose-your-fighter option for anyone with a Y chromosome was to be a big, beefy slab of goon. And that was true from roughly the dawn of time until, oh, I'd say about 1971. In the information age, intelligence is now suddenly, suddenly highly valued. Calling someone stupid these days, that is the equivalent now of performatively removing a white glove and slapping a person across the face. Gifted children, again, quote-unquote, are treated like minor deities for doing well on little kid IQ tests, which mostly just measure how much drool the kid got on the test sheet itself. If the kid didn't drool on it very much, they are a genius. Intelligence Look, it's a handy tool to possess, but in my opinion, it is the most overrated thing this side of Ted Lasso. So again, I'm trying to get at the idea that different people and different societies at different times value different things, different traits. A culture might value empathy or conformity or physical beauty or even aptitude at the bagpipes. In Kazakhstan... You can become a national hero by throwing a dead goat into a well. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I recommend you Google Buzkashi, not Bukaki. Type carefully. We are talking about Buzkashi, B-U-Z-K-A-S-H-I, a sport in Kazakhstan where you do indeed throw a dead goat into a well, and you can be the Michael Jordan of throwing a dead goat into a well in Kazakhstan 
and people will love you. In most places, throwing a dead goat into a well is frowned upon. I've always thought it's weird. If you are the 50th best, say, baseball player in the world, you are a multimillionaire. If you are the 50th best volleyball player in the world, you drive a fucking Uber. We value different things in different amounts at different times. The market for various traits is always in flux, and to imagine that any given valuation matches any objective sense of virtue, eh, that's just pretty silly. So, point number one, society values random things. Point number two, the measures that we have for the things that we value, they're often really bad. I have already thrown shade, as I am known to do, at IQ tests, which I think are quite iffy, measuring other traits like, for example, adaptability or social intelligence, and these are valuable things. It's basically impossible. I cannot even begin to imagine how we would measure, for example, empathy, another important trait, empathy. The best thing I can think of to measure empathy is a test, try to picture this, involving a series of trees with nests of orphaned baby birds located increasingly high on each successive tree. So on tree number one, pretty close to the ground, tree number 10, all the way at the top. And then we would measure how high You are willing to climb in order to spit a mouthful of chewed up worms into the bird's mouth. That's the best I could do for an empathy test. But even that, that's really partly a measure of climbing ability and worm tolerance. So you can see how hard this all is. And there are fields that devote massive resources to assessing specific traits and even then their assessments are really hit and miss. Physical traits, are those are some of the easiest to evaluate. You can often see them, or you can use an instrument, a stopwatch, a radar gun, to measure them. And yet the sports world is full of can't-miss prospects who completely flamed out and late-round draft picks who turned into all-stars. The wisdom of crowds, that also doesn't work here. Bill Cosby was pretty much universally agreed to be a paragon of moral character until we discovered that, whoops, he's actually a world-historic criminal. That's still strange to me. He didn't just have a bad day like OJ. I may be understating what OJ did there to say he had a bad day. No, it it was a very, very bad day. But Bill Cosby committed his crimes over the course of several decades. And the point is, we as a society are often very, very bad at knowing which traits a person possesses. Which means that even if we as a society did have a very clear sense of which traits are the important ones, this is the Brad hath spoken scenario that I described earlier. Even if we had that, our measurements are so bad that we don't really know who possesses which traits. We do make assessments of traits because we have to, and because a flawed metric is often better than none at all. I'll tell you, most people who are considered outstanding family men like Bill Cosby was are not historic rapists. It's under 50%, really. So a flawed metric is better than nothing at all, but we should absolutely not trick ourselves into imagining that we actually know Who possesses which traits with any precision at all? And my last point, the 
third layer in this three-layer cake of unknowable chaos that I am baking is that even if we knew what matters and could measure those traits with a very high level of precision, that measurement would tell us nothing about a person's moral worth. And that is because I think it has to be true that a person's moral worth has to be measured relative to their ability to do good things. That is, it is not total quantity of good things you did that's getting measured. It is quantity of good things relative to your ability to do good things. Boiled down even more, I'm saying effort counts. For example, consider a person, just an ordinary Jane. She is an EMT. She makes an average salary. In the course of her career, because she's an EMT, she sees the problems with our hospital system, and she starts a nonprofit that gets homeless people access to health care. And because of her efforts, a thousand people get treatment that they otherwise would not have gotten. Now consider another person. This guy is Joseph D. Paperclip IV. He is the heir to the vast little bendy metal thing that holds documents together fortune. Net worth at birth? Four billion dollars. So Joey Papers, as his bros call him, spends his life making Paris Hilton look like Jonas Salk. He fucks his way through the Mediterranean in his 20s. He starts several extremely stupid businesses that immediately fail in his 30s. He spends his golden years living in mansions that reflect the lowest lows of the best of Zillow, which is a very fun Twitter account that I recommend you follow. Now, shortly before this guy dies, his financial advisor tells him that a charitable donation would have tax benefits. So JP instructs his advisor to, quote, do something with hospitals. He sounds a lot like Brad. Anyway, because of this offhand comment that this very rich guy made to his financial advisor, a thousand homeless people end up getting health care that they otherwise would not have, just like the scenario before. So, obviously, the first person, Jane, did way better in life than the second person, Joey. Nonetheless, their output of good was the same. And, obviously, I have created a hypothetical here in which each person's ability to do good is measurable. I used money as a proxy for capacity to do good. In real life, of course, we don't know this. A person's capacity for good, whatever it may be, stems from a million factors, from their health, to their resources, to their environment, to just luck. We can't even know our own abilities, much less other people's abilities. Maybe Ambulance Jane was actually a logistical genius, and her modest healthcare work represented an extreme underutilization of her potential. Maybe Joey Paperclip suffered severe lead poisoning when he was a kid, and the fact that he didn't use his fortune to conquer the globe with a robot army represents a major moral success. We don't know anybody's baseline capacity, so we also don't know how they performed relative to that baseline. So, in a theological sense, we really don't know any person's moral worth, including Bill Cosby. I don't know, maybe he had an inclination to be the next Hitler and he just ended up being a serial rapist, so I guess that would be a win. It's hypothetically, hypothetically. Anywho, 
Can't believe I arguably ended up Team Cosby there. That's, boy, that's really, really took a wrong turn. Anyway, you may be wondering, why all of this? Why all the hand-wringing? Why did I just spend 15 minutes arguing that we can't really know how meritorious any person is? Why did I do that, especially since next week I am going to make a full-throated argument in favor of meritocracy. Why did I just do something very close to saying, hey, before I launch my 50-part YouTube series on origami, I just want to say folding paper is for dumb losers, okay? It's just my opinion. Why did I do that? I did it because I think that people often treat discussions of merit as discussions of worth. I think that a lot of the opposition to meritocracy comes from people who just aren't comfortable with the idea of declaring some people better and some people worse. There is a sense that when we pick someone for a desirable job or a spot in a prestigious school, we are declaring that person superior. So I am trying to be very, very clear. I do not believe that. The stuff I support, that is not what's going on. That is not what would be happening in the meritocratic systems I'm going to talk about next week. Those systems have absolutely nothing to say about a person's moral worth. To me, assessments made in meritocratic systems have a moral value equal to the practical value of some random jackass's review of a muffin tin on Amazon, which is to say... No value whatsoever. Because if you are spending your time doing that, I don't give a fuck what you say about anything up to and including muffin tins. And I think that accepting the idea that we are quite simply not talking about merit, like moral merit, when we talk about meritocracy, I think accepting that is key to making arguments over meritocracy less about status. It needs to be less about status. We would really all be better off if we could accept that decisions about colleges, about careers, romantic partners, many other things, those things are less about better or worse. They're just about different, really. Obsessing over status is not making us happier and healthier. Do people want to go to Harvard largely because it's just hard to get into Harvard? So they want to do it to go, look what I did. Yeah, definitely. No doubt about it. Really, for our societal and psychological health, we should really try to just let that go. We should accept that humans have wildly different proclivities and circumstances, and we should encourage people to follow whatever path helps them flourish. If we can do that, then it might be easier to accept meritocracy as a useful and fair tool for making certain decisions. And next week, I will argue that that is exactly what it is. And that's the episode. I gotta say, I'm always conflicted about doing these episodes where it's like, what's it all about? These kind of esoteric, abstract topics. I'm really, I know I'm on much more solid ground when I'm just saying, you know, this bill that's in Congress is good or bad, or better yet, ranting about some culture war thing. Oh, that's where the clicks come in, ranting about the culture wars. 
But you know, and this is selfish, I acknowledge, but I've learned that the thing that motivates me to write these columns is I just need to write what I am thinking about. I need to write about what's in my mind, and this was in my mind, so I wrote it. There you have it. So I hope you nonetheless enjoyed this exercise in narcissism. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your family and friends. Anyone who's in your Gmail address book, really. So I would say also please share it with like the building manager in the apartment where you used to live and a realtor from five years ago. People like that. I'm sure they would enjoy the podcast. Please leave a review on Apple Music and please go to my Substack. I might be wrong.substack.com. Actually, please do one of those things. I just listed like eight things. I don't want to make you think, geez, I like the podcast. I don't like the part where he gives me homework at the end. It would be great if you could do one of those 22 things. Thank you very much. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this. I will be back next week, as always, with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.